Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Good morning. Um, can I extend my welcome? My name's Andy. Uh, on the team here with the staff team, one of the elders here. Uh, it's a joy to welcome you. I hear we've got a number of guests from America as well, so uh, thank you for joining us. Um, and let's, we want to we immerse ourselves right at the end. If you've just joined us, sorry, but you're uh, joining us at the very end of a long journey through the letter which was written by the Apostle Peter to a dispersed group of Christians um, in the sort of area of Asia Minor over 2,000 years ago. And we're just coming to the end of our wonderful series in this. Um, but let, let's start with some prayer, and I'm going to just take a couple of words from um, the letter of Jeremiah. It says this, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in it its welfare in its welfare you will find your welfare I'll say that again but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare we thank you, Father God, for where you have sent us. We've learned through this letter that we are all exiles in this world. But that doesn't mean that you have given up on us in any sense of the word. But actually, in fact, you have great plans and purposes for our lives. You have sent us to where you want us to be for a purpose. And I believe that you are doing huge things in us and can do things through us as we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and we experience the goodness of God. Thank you for that image of grace upon grace. The, in the prayer meeting earlier, Lord, you spoke to us about how you shower us with grace like snow over the ground. Lord, you make us white as snow as a people, you have forgiven our sins and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And you not only stop there, but another falling of snow as you then cleanse our consciences and you work in our hearts and you motivate us to greater things because we now know that you have created us for good things and good deeds. So wherever you have sent us, for those who are listening today, Lord, for us here, we're here today for a reason, but probably even more so, wherever you're going to send us this week, we are there for a reason as well. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes to those realities and those opportunities, and that through this you might even open doors not only in our hearts, but in our societies, in our workplaces, and everywhere we might go, so that we can honor you and proclaim your name, and maybe even see this place where you have sent us changed for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're coming to the end of our letter, and we've got two final verses. And I just want you to listen out to see if you hear the unusual detail in these final two verses. 
because this is kind of like the credit sequence at the end of a film where it's very easy to switch off. You've watched the film, you've got the main material, that's good, and then the credit sequence starts, the music changes, and you start checking whether you finish your popcorn, you drink the last of your drink, and you're sort of getting ready to go. You're not really paying attention. That's the danger at the end of the letters of the New Testament, but we should never switch off, because I'll tell you, there is a riddle, a twist, a teaser, here at the end of Peter's letter, that you might spot. So starting at verse 12 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, I wonder whether you noticed the teaser. Some uh, movies, especially the superhero movies, will often have a credit sequence, and you're just about to leave the cinema, and then suddenly there is a new scene, and it is a teaser for a future thing in their long-winded franchise of Marvel that they just desperately want you to see the next rubbish film. But, But there's that... Easter egg, there's a little teaser right there that grips you and makes you think, maybe there's more to this than I was thinking. Did you notice it? Now, it might be helpful for me to set the scene to give you what seemed, what I think was common knowledge in their day. Uh, the commentators and historians are almost certain that Peter was writing from the city of Rome. That was where he ended up as like Paul, the Apostle Paul, ended up in Rome. And it is pretty well known, and it probably would have been well known amongst his readers, that Peter was in the epicenter of power, Rome. And yet he says this, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. But Peter is not in Babylon, He is in Rome. Now, it is likely that when he says she who is chosen, that's simply a reference to the church. The church often has a female metaphor or female pronoun attached to it. She who is in Babylon sends you greetings. That's the riddle. Why has Peter said Babylon and not Rome? I think Peter is doing multiple things in saying Babylon and not Rome. But the key thing, I think, to spot would be, what is he expecting his original readers, his audience, to understand? Now, I think Peter would have assumed that when he wrote this letter and sent it to those early Christian communities, there would have been some in that community who understood what Babylon meant, the symbolism that would be attached to that word, the associations that would come because they knew their Old Testaments extremely well. If you don't know, the Old Testament is the majority of our Bibles that we have today. The first part of that would be the the history of the nation of Israel, essentially, leading up until the arrival of Jesus Christ, and then that's the start of the New Testament. Peter's readers would have had access to the stories of the Old Testament, the stories that had been handed down through the Jewish communities over many years. 
And I think he is expecting them to know that, and therefore when he says, I'm in Babylon, he expects all sorts of thoughts and emotions to come to the surface. Now, we may not be as well trained in that as they are, but thank God for a project called the Bible Project, which is a superb um, resource that is out there to anyone. Everything that the Bible Project is, uh, produces is free. And funnily enough, this Monday just gone, they released this video about the city. Jealous of his... Near the beginning of the story of the Bible, a man named Cain becomes jealous of his brother, who's getting God's favor. And God tells Cain, be careful with your anger because sin is a monster that wants to consume you, but you can rule it. Cain gives in to the monster and murders his brother. And as a result, God sends Cain into the wilderness, and there he builds the first city in the story of the Bible. One man builds an entire city. Well, in the ancient world, a city was a group of homes surrounded by a wall. It's for protection. Cain's afraid that someone might find him and kill him. Okay, got it. The wall makes the city. Exactly. And then the city of Cain goes on to breed a culture of revenge and violence. Later, one of the city's warriors, who's like a corrupt king, boasts in a song, If you threaten or slap me or wound my honor, I'll kill you. This is the mindset at work in Cain's city. The monster that Cain let within has now become the monster that people live within. The city is bad news. But it doesn't have to be. The city of Cain is also where music is invented, along with metalworking and animal domestication. So cities can be a place where we create abundance for everyone. But give the city enough time and that monster will eventually take over. Right. Like the next city, founded by a giant warrior king who builds a city with a tower that reaches up into the heavens to make their name great. This is Babylon, which will one day spread its violence throughout the land, conquering many nations. Yes, Babylon is the biblical image of a monstrous, violent human city. And this is all tragic, because the city is the opposite of the safe garden home that God originally put humans in. So ancient cities have imposing walls for self-protection to keep resources inside. But the garden is protected by God, with a spring at its center that flows out into rivers that share its goodness with all the land. Babylon has a tower at its center to reach up to the heavens. While the garden has the tree of life at its center, God's heavenly throne and presence touching down on the land. The mindset of the city is self-preservation and peace enforced by the threat of death. But the culture of the garden is peace through generosity, because there's always enough to go around. Let's go back to the garden. Yes, you would think so. But the surprise of the biblical story is that God plans to bring his garden to the city. Really? Yeah, let's look at King David, who God appointed to lead Israel. He chose for their capital city to be... Jerusalem, the city of David, Mount Zion. Right, and when David brings the throne of God's presence up to Jerusalem, the city becomes an image of God's garden city. There's abundance for everybody and peace for a time. Right, until David becomes like Cain. He gives into that inner monster and murders one of his soldiers so he can take that man's wife. And so this begins the tragic story of Jerusalem's corruption through the kings from David's line. 
And while a few kings do try to stop the monster, most give in. So the Garden City becomes a den of robbers, full of greed and violence and oppression. And eventually Babylon, an even bigger monster, takes them out. Maybe the Garden City isn't realistic after all. But Israel's prophets maintained hope that God would one day create his heavenly city here on earth, with streams going out and the nation streaming in, gardens and feasts and peace, and no more death. This sounds like more than just a new city. This sounds like the dawn of new creation. Yes, it totally does. And it's actually this hope that brings us to the story of Jesus. In Jesus' day, Jerusalem was ruled by a violent King Herod. And when Jesus began announcing that God's heavenly kingdom was arriving here on earth, he didn't even go to Jerusalem or its leaders. Yeah, he went to the hills and towns of Galilee, sharing good news with the poor and the unimportant. And then Jesus took his followers up onto a hill and said, You all are the city on the hill that will shine its light to the nations. And then he taught his followers the ethic of God's city which is the opposite of the mindset of Cain's city and of Babylon. Instead of protecting life and keeping peace with the threat of violence, Jesus taught his followers to create peace by sharing generously, even with your enemies, and to preserve life through love and forgiveness, even if it costs you. This is what it looks like when the heavenly city comes to earth. But weren't the prophets expecting that God's new city would be Jerusalem? Well, Jesus said that the Jerusalem of his day was corrupt and headed for destruction. And this stirred up trouble with the leaders of the city. So to keep peace, they used the threat of death to get rid of Jesus. But when Jesus stood on trial, knowing that they were going to have him executed, he said he was about to be enthroned as king of God's heavenly city. Wait, you can't become king by letting your enemies kill you. Well, you can if you're stronger than death. In fact, this is the only way to transform the mindset of Cain's city to overcome the fear of death by trusting in the power of God's eternal life that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the power that streams out from Jesus into the world today. And so the earliest followers of Jesus called each other to seek the well-being of their cities while trusting that their true citizenship was elsewhere. You mean the New Jerusalem, the city of God? Yes. And when followers of Jesus gather and share together, they can begin to taste the life and love of that heavenly city right now, in the present. And so the story of the Bible doesn't end with humans building a city up to heaven. No, it ends with God bringing his garden city down to the land. The heavenly Jerusalem, full of abundance for all the nations, with the river of life flowing through its streets. And at its center is the crucified and risen Jesus on the throne. And the city walls will be decommissioned because the gates of this city will never be closed. Near the beginning of... It's nice when uh, God does all of the hard work for you and releases a video like that this week. (laughs) Amen. Let's worship. (laughs) So why did Peter call Rome Babylon? Well, I think on the surface, it's probably quite obvious with all of that in mind, he is probably warning his earliest uh, readers to not over-glamorize Rome. It would have been too easy to see Rome as the height of human achievement, the center of power with its towers of power, with all of the celebrities and all of the military might 
centered in and around that area and that city. That would have been the center of excellence, and it would have been very easy for young, early Christian community to, one, glamorize it, and also be intimidated by it. And I think in one clever little sweep, one tiny little phrase, Peter is dismantling both of those attitudes. He wants us to see through the veneer of the man-made city. The mask, rip it off and show it for what it really is. Because it's easy to be hypnotized by the spirits of the city that tell you to just immerse yourself in and make a name for yourself and blend in. But I think there are moments, there are glitch in the matrix moments that we should listen to, that we should notice. We've had one recently um, in our, where we live. We live in um, an area just south of the river called Clapham. It's nice, leafy, lots of young graduates. You walk around the park and people are playing music and there's far too much champagne corks and uh, hummus wrappers for my liking. But it's a, it's a nice, leafy area of London that has the veneer of peace and prosperity. But then there was Barry. Barry was probably the first person that we met when we moved into um, the area two years ago. Barry sat on the corner just before the kids' playground with his very small battery-powered radio because he'd been told off by the estate office for using his big boombox and upsetting the other neighbors. So he'd listen to reggae music with his little crackly radio. He would always have his faithful junior by his side, a large, slightly overweight, I think, pit bull terrier or something like that. He would be feeding the squirrels, but one day he had to stop that because the estate office told him off for feeding the squirrels. But he would always say hi as we walked past. He would potentially be drunk most of the time when we did walk past him and say hi, but he'd always be kind and friendly to our little girls as they grew up and got to know Barry or at least our older one did. And Barry was a lovely man on the corner of the street, <clears throat> but he didn't fit in with the area so much, you might say. The back of his garden was piled high with beer cans. It was fully overgrown with brambles. And Barry was just trying to make a living, just try to make it work where he was. But recently, Barry's sort of gone missing, and we hadn't seen him for a while. I think Sean might have bumped in, into him in a park when he was reasonably drunk one day. And, but then we, um, as I said, haven't seen him for a while, and I walked past his house just to see whether he was there to knock on the door. Because previously, actually, we'd been slightly warming to one another. We had a life group social in our garden and had a bit of a barbecue. We invited him. He didn't feel quite comfortable to join, but we took him over a plate of chicken, and he seemed to enjoy that. So I was going to knock on his door to see how things were. But the windows were all boarded up, and there were the stains of smoke that had come out of his windows and out of the door frame. Black smoke clearly burned on the inside. And there was a little letter, handwritten letter on his door saying, Mr. So-and-so, if you return to your house, please contact this phone number. No sign of Barry at all. But then only a couple of weeks ago, I went round, and I think the boarding has come down, but at least the garden now, the council have moved in and cleared all of the beer cans, cleared the brambles, and it seems are now getting ready for the next tenants. 
Barry has been swollen, uh, swallowed up by the city. He's been swallowed up by the monster of the city. His name has been rubbed out from our neighborhood. He's gone. And that's the effect that the city has, this monster that controls things. As people try to make a name for themselves, the spiritual forces underneath are not interested in your name at all. They will wipe out your name as quickly as your name arrives so that they can get someone else in to feed the monster, feed the beast, and see it grow. Now, I'm not saying that we dislike London and that you should despise the city that you are in, but I think you should see through the veneer that it is all too easy to forget those moments, to forget that you saw through a crack and to carry on as if everything is absolutely rose-tinted, to forget that we're meant to be living for a much more glorious heavenly city that is made by God, not by man. And I think that's what Peter would want his audience to see when he calls Rome at that time, the epicenter of power, at least in the West, he calls it Babylon, because this is not your home. Your home, Christian, is in heaven. That is where God dwells, and that is what we should be living for. So he's saying, don't call Rome home. Don't call London home in that way. But this isn't all bad news. I'm not trying to scare you off, move out into the suburbs. Because I think Peter not only shows us the negative side, he rips away the true veneer of the city, but then also he shows his audience what potential there is in the city. Because Peter would have known the history of his people and how Israel ended up in the real Babylon many, many hundreds of years before. God's people were captured by the Babylonian Empire, and many of them were taken into Babylon, this tiny little community in this enormous behemoth of a city that could so easily have squashed them or squeezed them into its shape. But the stories that we have from the Old Testament that Peter would have known about his people in Babylon show a small little community being faithful to God finding God in a new place and seeing the most dramatic transformation of the city through the leaders like Nebuchadnezzar and the Persian king Darius later converting, having seen the power of God at work and bringing about social reform in the city because of their faithful living. And with that passage that I read at the beginning before I prayed, Jeremiah, who wrote to the exiles while they were in Babylon to say, don't rebel, don't get grumpy, don't complain, seek the peace and prosperity of where you are and see what God does. I think that is what Peter would be encouraging his audience to see. As he's finishing off this incredible letter, I think he's leaving with them with a trailer for the future. Don't dismay, actually have hope. Hope for what might happen if you seek God in Babylon, if you seek God in your Babylon, wherever you are, God might do immeasurably more than you could think or imagine because he's already done it in the past and he believes that he could do it again in the future. So what might God do in Babylon? 
I think this is multifaceted, and we learn this from the Old Testament. What did God do in Babylon? What might God do in your life, in us as a church, while we are in Babylon? If we seek him here in Babylon, what might he do? First, I think, spiritually, I think he might take people to a new place. The Jews, so Peter growing up in Israel, Daniel growing up in Israel, they would have known that God, or they would have believed that God was the true God of the whole world. He had a special interest in one particular place for that period of time, but he was the true God of the whole world. He was the real God above all of the other gods that other nations worshipped and other cities idolized. He was the true God above all of that. They believed that growing up in Israel. But it's much easier to believe that growing up in Israel than believe that when you've been taken into a foreign land and you are the, now the minority and no one else around you believes what you believe. It is much harder to believe. It's why parents rightly sometimes get so anxious about sending their children off to university. They've grown up in a stable Christian environment perhaps with a good local church and good influences around and then going off to the big city and suddenly being surrounded but I think Peter wouldn't want parents or anyone to be paranoid about that, but actually believe that if their child has learned to seek God where they were, they will also be able to find God where they are. Because God is as present in Babylon as he was in Israel. They just need to learn it. And I think Jesus was getting his friends ready for this. Jesus did nearly all of his ministry in and around Israel. Well, all of it in and around Israel, largely within Jewish communities. But he threw a spanner in the works early on. He prepared them for something very unpredicted in the future. In Mark chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24, we hear a similar story of the disciples, including Peter, getting around Jesus when they were by the temple this great place where God's presence used to live. That's God's house. And that's where they believed that God would return and he would live within those stone walls. That would be the epicenter of God's people. And the disciples are sort of thinking, hey, isn't it a wonderful building? Isn't it such a privilege that we have this remarkable place where God live, is going to live? And Jesus says, in a couple of years, this thing is going to be rubble. This thing is going to be flattened. It'll be destroyed. This will be nothing. Can you imagine being one of the Jews who that has been the center of God's activity and this Messiah figure is telling you that it's about to be destroyed? Or take Jesus' conversation with just a single woman at a well. The woman at the well story in John chapter 4 who she starts to do a bit of a comparison with him and says, hey, we are Samaritan people worship on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which is it? And Jesus says, there's a time that's coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem because my people will worship the Father in spirit and truth wherever they are. Wherever I send them, they are going to be finding God no longer in a physical location, no longer bound to one mountain or one city, but actually spread across the whole world. Now, I know it's sort of a bit different for us to think because we're now 
many thousands of years on and the beneficiaries of this, but it is still important to remember how radical Jesus' idea is because it slips into our vocabulary quite easily. We call this building our church. Very quickly, we call this physical building our church. And we say our church is in Westminster. No, no, no. Our church is currently in Westminster. We're all here. But in a couple of hours, our church will be spread across London. Peter learned this lesson when he writes in this letter, hey, the church is not made up of limestone. The temple of God is not made up of limestone. It's made up of living stones. That was a radical transformation for a Jew who'd grown up with the focus all around that limestone temple. Now, he found himself in the belly of Rome, trying to learn to find God in a new place. And it seems that he found God probably in a new way, to a new measure, in a remarkable new power, in a brand new place. Smaller communities, different areas. And this is what Jesus was preparing his people for. And I think Peter, by the end of his life at least, has learned this remarkable lesson that wherever God's people go, he will enable them, if they seek him, to find him wherever they are. And the writers about exile often say as well, it was during exile that the greatest spiritual creativity came out of God's people as well. That the prophets, the great prophets, wrote and, sp- wrote and spoke during the time of exile. It was a remarkable time when there were incredible psalms and poetry and prophecy and imagery that came out of the nation of Israel during the time of exile. And I wonder, us as a church, having gone through a kind of wilderness exile experience, what spiritual creativity might God be working in us at the moment? I think we're open to learn. We're open to hear what God has been doing amongst us as a people and where he might lead us. Secondly, I think I won't get through all of my points. Secondly, (laughs) I think God brings people to a new place emotionally when they're in Babylon. The Proverbs say this, Proverb 4.23 says, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, I think many Western Christians, at least, would prefer that to say, guard your heads. And it is important that we renew our minds and transform our thinking. But this clearly says, guard your hearts. And the heart in Hebrew literature was the very deepest part of your feelings and your emotions. It was the very gut feelings and emotions that you have. And it says, out of those, everything that you do comes. The very direction of your life comes out of your deep-seated emotions and feelings. And I think it's in exile, and some of you will understand this more than others because you feel like foreigners in London more than others might do. That when you are in a new place, all sorts of things that you didn't realize were under there get triggered. All sorts of anxieties, angers, attitudes suddenly raise their heads because of all the stress and all the new environments and the different things that you have to try and engage with or understand all come at you and these things writhe up inside of you. And the Bible would say, 
Emotional maturity isn't learning to suppress your emotions, it is learning to harness them and learning to get a control on your emotions. I think of the Psalms for this. There are Psalms full of rage, but these people have learned to direct their rage not by throwing punches at their enemies, but by throwing prayers at God. There are all sorts of anxieties in the Psalms, but people don't allow their anxieties to control them. They cast their anxieties upon God. Even lamentation, how we deal with grief, and how we truly work through situations that have so hurt us. The Bible is so full of great emotional maturity when it comes to lamentation because it's not teaching people to bottle up your emotions, it's teaching them to cry into God's bottles and allow him to collect your tears. This is what it is to harness your emotions and even joy. Joy in the Bible, they erupt with joy. I leak joy out the side. I want to learn to to harness my emotions in the same way that these people have learned whilst in Babylon. I think ethically and socially God does incredible things in Babylon because it's exiles that really feel injustice more than any others, I think. Often because that injustice is most directed at them. When you're a foreigner in another land and you try and settle in and you are mistreated and you are attacked by those who would be local and you're cast aside or forgotten about, you feel it and you see it for what it is. And Christians can learn this whether they've lived in London their whole life or whether you've just arrived in. You can see the injustices that are here or wherever you are because we are meant to set our minds on the heavenly city and to realize how perfect heaven is compared to here. And that is what will drive your prayer life, to pray that God's kingdom comes no matter what. No matter how much it disrupts maybe even your own life in order to see justice done here in this city. And all of this builds towards, I think, the social revolution that comes when Christians seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Just as Daniel did. I would encourage you, go back and, well, maybe you don't don't really want to, but it'll be my voice again. Um, We did a whole series on Daniel looking at the social revolution that happened as he lived faithfully for God there. Go back and read about it. But also... Go back and read Christian history. Because the remarkable thing is, the same thing that happened to Babylon happened to Rome. Over a long-term obedience by Daniel and his friends in Babylon, they saw government change. They saw rulers repent and change their attitudes and allow religious freedom for God's people and see amazing justice done. And the same was true in Rome. Peter, after telling his people, keep praying, keep meeting with Christian community, stay immersed in the word of God, submit yourselves to ungodly authorities, love your unreasonable relatives, especially your spouse, only retaliate with goodness, honor everyone, not only a small group of people, and preach the gospel wherever you get an opportunity. If you do all of that, you will be blessed, he said. Now, I'm not sure Peter saw much of that social revolution, because blessed 
in the Bible, <clears throat> blessed in the Bible is a sort of a code word for social godly revolution. It is how you see somewhere transformed. It is how you see a city turned into a garden city. It is how you see great fruit emerge out of dry ground. That is what blessing is referring to. Peter believed that they would see blessing, but did they see it in their lifetime? I am not sure. But over hundreds of years of Christians living in this way and going through the fiery trials and being persecuted for how they were living and what they were preaching, staying faithful, not retaliating with fire with fire, but staying meek and humble, they saw the Roman Empire transformed. You can read about it in the history books. Many, many centuries later, there was such an uprising of Christianity from amongst those that the empire regarded as nameless and unimportant and despised in the communities. The orphans that were never even given a name and just thrown in the street to die. Widows who lost their husband's name and then were regarded as nobodies. All of these people cast out by Rome. They could not make a name for themselves. They were not part of this city. Those were the ones that the Christians loved. Those were the ones that became the Christian community. And over hundreds of years, the pressure built so much that the pagan emperors of Rome could not withstand the flood of Christianity. And eventually in the 300s, Rome converted to Christianity. Now there's all sorts of debates about what was going on at the top, why they were converting to Rome, why Constantine actually became a Christian, self-proclaimed Christian. There's debates about that, but there's no debates about what actually happened on the, at the grassroots level. As God's people served the communities, no matter what the persecution was that they faced, they saw the greatest revolution ever known to this world. You can read about it in a book like Tom Holland's book called Dominion and various others that show how Christianity really transformed first the Roman Empire and then the West especially, and I believe continuing into the East as well, because Jesus said he would. He said, go into the whole world and make disciples, and I'll be with you the whole time. From heaven's perspective, Jesus is establishing his kingdom across the whole world. And he does it through faithful people living in Babylon, seeking God where they are. But I just want to finish on this note. It isn't, doesn't start with social revolution. Christianity isn't a message about social revolution first. It is a message about repentance first. I laughed with, I laughed with um, uh, Diane up there. I don't know why I put this slide in, but it might mean something to someone. <laughs> Just so you don't get distracted by it. I thought it looked nice. Christianity doesn't start with social revolution. It starts with repentance. What do I mean by that? That was what happened at the grassroots. These people were not suddenly getting brought into a new political idea that they thought they could usurp the powers of Rome. No, they converted to follow King Jesus and live for a heavenly home. And in the process of doing that, they saw radical transformation. Because the thing is here, Jesus wasn't joking when he threatened the destruction of that temple. When he said this thing is going to be cast to the ground and turned into rubble, he wasn't joking. 40 years later, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman army. 
It's in the history books. It was a seismic shift. And all who had attached their associations and their allegiances to the temple and to the old Jewish system were destroyed with it. But there was 40 years of brave gospel preaching by the Christian community that saw thousands upon thousands turn from a system that was about being making a name for yourself and building your own cities and making Babylon your home. There was preaching in the cities, preaching in the neighborhoods, preaching in the households that told people that there is a better heavenly city, there is a better king, his name is Jesus, and he came into Babylon to save us out of it. God didn't send a postcard from heaven to help us try and make our cities better. He sent his son to rescue us from them, to rescue us from the hell that we've created here, which is only leading to destruction. Jesus came to save people out of that future into a much better one. That is why Paul, uh, Peter gives so much emphasis to our heavenly inheritance and how unshakable it is. Eugene Peterson says this about repentance. Repentance is not an emotion, it's a decision. It is deciding that you have been wrong to build your own city all this time. It is deciding that you've been told a pack of lies about this world and its benefits, and instead deciding that God in Jesus is really telling you the truth. That's repentance. It's the most practical thing you could possibly do today. Just change your mind about all of that. Daniel only saw God move in Babylon because he refused to call it his home and he looked for a heavenly home. Peter saw the transformation in Babylon that he and his um, successors saw because they were not willing to call Rome home, but they sought the heavenly city and they worshiped Jesus. And I think here we have Peter reflecting on what happened to Babylon. Here he is in unchanging Rome. He definitely didn't have the foothold in Rome. They were a tiny little Jewish community, Christian community there, with no power. But he looked back at Babylon and saw what happened to Babylon. And right here, we are reflecting on what happened to Rome. After Peter's faithful obedience and his people's faithful obedience in Rome, we now look back in the history books and see what happened. Jesus took over. So I just wonder whether people in the future will reflect on what happened in London through people's faithful obedience, seeking God in Babylon and seeing what he might do amongst us. Band, if you want to come up, please. See, the thing is, God can turn around a city just like that. In the flip of a switch, he can turn around a city but it seems from the Bible he only ever does it at the speed that people repent, at the speed that people change their mind. Probably the fastest transforming city in the world was Nineveh. It seems like the prophet Jonah preached half a sentence and they re repented and God turned around a city just like that. In Rome, it took much longer. I don't know how long it'll take in London, but it does start today. 
it does start today amongst us. And I'm not just saying to those who are not yet Christians, although I'd love you to change your mind about Jesus. He is real, he is active, he died for you, he rose from the dead, and he has been working his power across this world ever since. And he wants to do it in your life. But I'm also saying us as a community as well, change our mind about living for London. Live in Babylon. Seek the welfare of this place. Seek its peace. Bless your neighbors, but live for the heavenly home that's coming. And we will see a garden city emerge in this place. I believe it. Why don't we pray? Father, thank you for this amazing letter that we've been working through and Peter's insights, but most of all your insights, the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this stuff and how relevant it has been to us over this season, how much you really know how much we've needed you and how much we've needed the word of God in our lives over this season. But Lord, not just for now, but forever, we need you in our midst. We need you working in power. And we believe, Lord, that you can do remarkable things through a humble people who will seek you, hunger after righteousness, mourn so that they will be comforted, show meekness and then inherit the earth, and stand firm against whatever opposition comes, not retaliating with fists, but retaliating with love and care. Lord God, please move amongst us. Help us to change our minds where we need to. Our attitudes, the way that we invest our time and our money, what we seek. Help us, Lord. Amen. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.